Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We're in lesson number 12 in our theological studies in the Seminar of the Air, and lesson 12, of course, we're still dealing with theology proper, studies of God the Father. This will be our last broadcast on the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. On this broadcast, we're studying the subject of the fear of the Lord, and we'll conclude our broadcast today with the uh, conclusion of this study, and then take up Christology next week. Our next 34 lessons will be on what we call Christology, or the study of Christ. Then after that, we'll have studies about uh, pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, about anthropology, about man, about angelology and demonology, and then, of course, messages on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We're taking our outline from the dogmatic and systematic theologies of Kuiper, Dabney, Hodge, Shedd, Lewis Perry Schaefer, and the classic theologians, uh, Calvin and Augustine, and, of course, the differences in this broadcast, we are uh, adhering strictly to the Word of God. And while these theologians have uh, crossed or corrected the Word of God, we quite naturally cross and correct them. <clears throat> Our lesson this week is on the fear of God again, continuing, and discussing very briefly now the motives that cause us to fear God, the results of fearing God, and why the fear of the Lord is necessary. And we've covered some of this in our uh, broadcast on the fear of God being commanded and our description of the fear of the Lord. Now, the holiness of God should cause us to fear Him. I realize that fear is given by the psychiatrists and mentally sick people as an unhealthy motive, but that's because these people are unhealthy themselves mentally. The shrinks and uh, people who recommend to you that you get rid of fear carry life insurance. So it's rather hypocritical to start with. When a man talks about getting fear out of your life, and like Roosevelt used to say, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, it's rather the talk of a man who's mentally unbalanced or somewhat of a hypocrite himself. You people I'm talking to carry life insurance and health insurance, Red Cross and Blue Cross, collision liability, fire insurance, and some of you are even Social Security, aren't you? I think you are. So all this nonsense about fear is an unhealthy motive is the talk of a two-tongued hypocrite. There's nothing to it. If fear is an unhealthy motive, then 95% of the doctors and lawyers in America are just as sick as they can be in the head. But the truth of the matter is, fear is a very healthy motive. As a matter of fact, it's fear of going through a red light at an intersection that keeps you alive. Now, string them up when we get in the religious realm, the modernists and liberals who are scared to death of going to hell themselves, so they try to pretend it's not there, or make a liar out of God, suddenly get the sickly idea that it's all right to fear man and fear death and fear disease and fear poverty, but it's a dirty sin to fear God. Well, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the believer's treasure. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. In Revelation 15:4, we read, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art only, thou only art holy. Uh, the reason why Americans don't fear God is because their God is an unclean God. He's a hippie God. <clears throat> the God of the average American is kind of a bum himself. You don't have to be afraid about him. He won't hurt you. He'll just kiss you, know, or give you a handout, or come to you for a handout. And, of course, this is not the God of the Bible. As we've discussed the matters of theology and the descriptions of God the Father, we've come to understand that God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-seating, all-pervading, ever-eternal, self-existent, infinite, and immutable, and such a God, my friend, is to be feared. The greatness of God calls to fear him. Deuteronomy 10:12 says, Now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God? 
For the Lord your God is a God of gods. That is, the chariot of the gods are placed off. Our God is the God of gods. So don't worry about Jupiter and Zeus and Apollo and uh, Mithra and Venus and Diana and Adonis and Apollo and Ashtarte and Baal and all the kiddies. Our God is a God of gods. Never mind the astronauts and the flying saucers and the things coming down that pretend they're from Ezekiel 1 when they're not. Never mind all the kiddie stuff. Our God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God of mighty and terrible. That is, no, the goodness of God calls to fear him. Samuel says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for thee. The goodness of God shall lead a man to fear him, for surely if God can be that good to a man who doesn't deserve that goodness, then certainly there is another side to God's nature that will be manifest sooner or later. Uh, Paul says, Behold the goodness of God. In the same sentence, he says, Behold also the severity of God. The forgiveness of God should cause us to fear him. David said, There is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Joshua, reviewing the Lord's work, says these wondrous works that God did to the nation of Israel should cause them to fear him. And coming judgments could, should cause the sinner to fear the Lord, because in the book of Revelation we read, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Now, I realize, of course, while we're broadcasting, that many of you people listening to this broadcast that have no fear of God at all. You are the people that are afraid of men. And the old axiom is true, where a man fears God, men don't bother him very much. And where men are afraid of men, then they don't fear God. Now, that's the rule. If you want to know what is wrong with America in one sentence that would include the boob tube, the idiot box, and would include the juvenile delinquent rate and the ghettos and New York and Chicago and Detroit going bankrupt along with England and the enforced race mixing by federal decree and people being kicked out of jobs in the government because of private conversations. That is, you want to know how American became a totalitarian fascist dictatorship ruled by a minority, you can state it in one statement. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A man that fears God would not behave like our leaders behave. And a man that fears God would not go around digging up smut to print it in the newspaper and call it a news story. A man that fears God would keep his nose out of other people's business and wouldn't parade it on free networks to sell newspapers. You see what I mean, Jelly Bean? The trouble of this country is very simple. It has ceased to fear God. And where it fears God, it will fear Russia and China. Like in World War II, it feared Germany. It feared a country no bigger than the state of Oregon. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine 48 states with an alliance with Russia and England being afraid of a country no bigger than one state? Where there's no fear of God, there's the fear of man. Where there's the fear of God, there's no fear of man. The thing that enabled martyrs to go to the stake and laugh about it and kiss the stake and pray for their tormentors and their captives was the fact they feared God. The fear of the Lord is necessary. It's necessary to worship. Psalm 5, 7, in thy fear will I worship. It is necessary in service. Psalm 2, 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. It is necessary to keep us from sin. Exodus 20, 20 says, fear not. For God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. 
Now notice this apparent contradiction that unsaved elders, priests, bishops, and deacons, and cardinals, and popes could never understand. Fear not. God has come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces. The unsaved, unregenerate religious leader reasons, why would he say, fear not, and then say, fear? Doesn't the Bible say, perfect love casteth out fear? Yes. Then why does it say, work out thy salvation with fear and trembling? When Christ says, Be not afraid, peace be unto thee, be not afraid, it is I, and God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind, then why does he say, Serve God with godly reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire? Why, it's very simple to figure out if you're saved. Unless you're a backslidden ecumenical Christian who's looking for a magpie nest to get an income. Now, if you're one of these Christians who's going along with the world system to build your monument or become a celebrity, or gain a large following and have people speak well of you, then it's pretty hard to understand, isn't it? But if you're a saved man in whom dwells the Holy Spirit and has a Bible written and preserved by the Holy Spirit, it's very simple. Any man who had a good father feared his father and loved him at the same time. And if you didn't, you either had a poor father or you were a punk child. No one I'm talking to who had a good father or a good mother doesn't understand the text. You understand that you can love a parent and fear them at the same time. And if you don't understand that, you haven't had proper upbringing, and believe me, whether you've had it or not, God the Father, who said, as a mother pities her, as a father pities his children, and as one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, God will not make the mistake your parents made. Christ said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to them that ask him? If you haven't had the right upbringing, don't get on me from bringing it to your mind you can get the right upbringing now. But you'll have to have God for your father to do it. The fear of the Lord is necessary for good government. David said, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. A man who is a president of the United States or a king or a governor doesn't fear God is an abomination, has no business being in the office. What right does any man have to tell somebody what to do when that man himself has no fear of God? but is only afraid of votes and politicians and inflation and unemployment. Get him out. A God-fearing man will be careful what he says. A God-fearing man will be careful how he treats God and God's Word. A God-fearing man will not do what a church tells him to do. He'll do what God tells him to do. A God-fearing man will not let a religious dictator uh, dictate religious policy to him. He'll go by the book. A God-fearing man will not regard the whine and cry of minorities who want to overthrow the government. You need a God-fearing man. Well, the man doesn't fear God, he isn't going to do anything in office except make a mess of things. The fear of God is necessary for administration of justice. The fear of God is necessary for the perfecting of holiness in the Christian's life. Paul to work out your salvation of fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you. Now, he didn't say you could work to get saved. You already have salvation. You're to work it out. He didn't say work at it. He said, work out what God has worked in. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you. Now, finally, what are the results of fearing the Lord? This fearing the Lord, which unsaved people are so afraid about and get so neurotic and psychotic about, and the world is filled with them, what does it result in? 
I mean, if a man actually fears God like the Bible told him to do, does it make him psychotic? Does it make him a candidate for the funny farm? What are the results of fearing the Lord? Do you ever think about it? All right, there are ten results that come from a man fearing God. The first of these is the man gets wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to know what will keep you out of more trouble and more scrapes and more sorrow and more headache and more heartache than anything else in this world, it's the simple, clean, enduring fear of God. Secondly, it brings pleasure to the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 147:11, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. Thirdly, it causes the Lord's pity to increase upon the child of God. The Bible says, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. It brings acceptance with God. In Acts 10.35, Peter said, In every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The case was an unsaved Gentile who followed his conscience, and although he was unsaved and needed to hear the gospel to be saved, because he feared God and followed his conscience and obeyed his conscience, God got the gospel to him and sent him a missionary, and Cornelius was born again by believing the gospel. The Lord accepted Cornelius' prayers for further light and gave him further light in the truth because he feared him. It brings the mercy of God. Psalm 103, verse 17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. It brings blessing. Psalm 112, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. What do you got to say about it? The Bible says, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. What do you say? How about some of you nuts that are always quoting the Sermon on the Mount like you thought you had good sense and talking about, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, think positively, life is beautiful, hit it, baby, you know, think beautiful thoughts. How come you're always saying, Bless the pure in heart, bless the meek, and never read, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord? A little unbalanced there, aren't you? What do you do in quoting the Beatitudes in the ten, uh, in the Beatitudes in uh, the Sermon on the Mount and have forgotten the Beatitude in Psalm 112, verse 1? The Bible doesn't say, Blessed is the man that thinks God will put up with anything. The Bible doesn't say, Blessed is the man that thinks positive thoughts. The Bible doesn't say, Blessed is the man that thinks beautiful thoughts all the time. The Bible says, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. The results of fearing the Lord are it brings confidence. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. It brings separation from evil. Proverbs 16.6 says, By the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Today there's little fear of God, so there's an abundance of evil. That's all there is to it. You put America's problem down in one line. The people who write the television plays don't fear God. The people who publish the pornographic magazines don't fear God. The government administration officials in control are worried about losing their jobs. They're not worried about what God thinks about them. That's all there is to it, man. When a nation ceases to fear God, it goes down the drain. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So who in America is going to depart from evil, I ask you? Well, they're going to go right on doing it and saying that evil is good and good is evil and everything is relative and depends upon how you look at it and go right on with the government of the country sunk. Can't you figure that out? 
The Bible says all the nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. The Bible says righteous exalts the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The Bible says in vain the watchman sits up to keep the place, if the Lord is not the foundation. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. That goes for a nation, a church, and a school, as well as a household. Now, I know those are terrible things I'm talking about. I know the very hard, brutal facts. But you've heard them directly from the mouth of Billy Graham many times, and you've heard them indirectly in milder forms from other evangelists at different times. And in this country 50 years ago, you would have heard them from every old-time Bible-believing preacher in every pulpit in the United States. Well, what do you suppose happens to a country where the preachers cease to fear God? Now, that's something to think about, isn't it? What do you suppose happens to a country where a congregation of people who want to do wrong come and sit and listen to a man who's afraid of them and afraid to tell them what's wrong because he doesn't fear God, he fears his congregation more than he fears God? Now, don't you know that church is going to be in a flat-footed mess? It isn't hard to guess what's wrong with America. It isn't hard at all. If the preachers have so little fear of God, they'd change the Bible every other verse and think that because they had 20 years of education, they were smart enough to change it. What do you think their congregation's going to do, honey? If the preachers in America have so little the fear of God left it and they're altering and changing that Bible three and four thousand times, why, there are 30,000 changes between the new ASV and the King James. The Living Bible, called Living Bible, is not even a Bible, it's a paraphrase. As a matter of fact, it's not even a paraphrase. I've got 300 references here to show it's not a paraphrase, it's a commentary. It was Kenneth Taylor's commentary on what he thought the Bible taught. It isn't a paraphrase per se. Anybody who knows grammar in English has better sense than that, brother. Now, let me ask you something. If the preachers in America have so little the fear of God, they wouldn't hesitate to tamper the Word of God in 30,000 places. What kind of congregations do you think they're going to produce? God-fearing, righteous congregations? No. They're going to produce hippie congregations. They're going to produce smart-aleck lawyers and doctors and bankers who think because they make $100,000 a year, they're intelligent. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not a college education. And by fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. You know why some of your sons don't cast off the chains of restraint and just go to hell all, all the way? Because some of them still are afraid what daddy might do to them. Did you know that? You know, some of you unsaved people I'm talking to right now, you know your son has more sense than you got. Your son is afraid you'll take the car away from him or not buy the license for him or quit giving him money for gas if he doesn't straighten up or at least cover up his devilment or lie his way through. You know, it's what fear is a good healthy motive that keeps your son from getting a lot of devilment he would get into if he didn't fear you. And he knows it. And yet some of you people I'm talking to don't fear God. And you fancy you're intelligent. All you're going to do is get into the trouble your son would get into if the restraints were taken off him. Now this brings up the problem of the modern educational system and the NEA and the work of Horace Mann and Greeley and the work of uh, Pestalozzi and Giovanni Gentile and the modern educators what we call behavioristic psychology, which I don't have a lot of time to go into. But the long and short of it is there are basically two philosophies about training and education. There's the modern one and the old one. 
the old system of education, that is the philosophy education, what we call an educational philosophy was that a child was unruly and by natural bent was tended to mischief and must be restrained. Now, whether the teacher believed in the depravity of man or the need for the new birth or the Bible is immaterial at this point in our discussion, because we're talking about an, a, an approach to education. And I'm not saying the teacher has to be a Christian. The teacher might be an atheist or an agnostic or a Roman Catholic or a Jew. See, I'm not talking about any religious preference. I'm talking about two basic attitudes toward education. In the old system, it was taken for granted the child's natural bent was to evil. And therefore, the child should be restrained and prevented from evil and give inducements to do right, to be encouraged for doing right, and to be punished for doing wrong. Now, the modern system of education, which came up in the 1920s and 1930s and blossomed in the 1950s and 1960s, was simply this. It was the liberal teaching of the National Council of Churches that people are basically good. That is, while professing to separate the church and the state, the church teaching of the religious liberal was incorporated in the educational system. The system now believes that since the child is basically good, which is a religious conviction, that restraint should be taken off and the natural bent of the child should be encouraged. And rather than punish evil, the child should be taught to make up its own mind about what's good and what's evil, and if it decides that evil is good and good is evil, that's all right for the kid as long as it works for the kid. This in the curriculum is called, quote, values gratification, which is another way of spelling H-E-L-L. And it simply means that you overthrow standards of righteousness and set up your own. Educated people have always had a way to tell it like it ain't. And by speaking about innate capacities and latent potentialities and validation of ethnic communication in dialogue with a meaningful, irrelevant symbolism which crosses the barrier between the heteronymous influence and the atomic... Yes, see, honey, by giving you all that garbage in $30 words, they make you think something's going on that's not going on. Do you know what's going on? I know. All five of my children came up to the public school system. Don't tell me, I'll tell you. As a matter of fact, I've got two more children coming up in the public school system and two grandchildren coming up in the, in the public school system. You know what's going on? They're taking off the bridle and then talking about a generation gap. Ain't that a flip? All right, the results of the fearing of the Lord are departing from evil. And where there's no fear of the Lord, there is no departure from evil. Period. You say, Brother Ruckman, I don't like, you don't like a lot of things. That's the truth. The truth is, where men fear God, they depart from evil. And where they don't, they don't. And your child wouldn't be safe in a town where somebody didn't fear God. You read me? If the fear of the Lord is taken completely out of your town, your town won't be safe to live in. Got it? You say, I still think you didn't have any sense to start whether you got it the first time it came through. I'm not talking about opinions. That's a scientific law. If you don't believe it, stay in a neighborhood where there's no fear of God and watch what happens to you. Most folks have enough sense. They move out. 
All right, the fear of the Lord brings Christian fellowship. Malachi said, They that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. It supersedes the fear of man. The Lord said, Neither fear ye there fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear. Quit fearing man. Start fearing God. Start putting God first in your life instead of your family. Start putting God's Word first in your life instead of the newspaper. Put God first. Now, when I say first, he said, let him be your fear. If you want to be afraid of an opinion, be afraid of what God thinks about you. If you want to be afraid of gossip, be afraid of what God says about you up in glory. If you want to be afraid of what will happen to you if you don't obey men, start being afraid about what God will do to you if you don't obey God. The fear of the Lord is a healthy thing, a clean thing, a good thing, an enduring thing. It's a positive thing. It's the most positive thing you ever got your hand on. Because finally it brings answered prayer. Psalm 145, 19 says, God will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. But that isn't the best of it. If you're just plain carnal, the best of it is the fear of the Lord prolongeth days. Proverbs 10, verse 27. It brings long life. Now, those are the 11 or 12 results of fearing the Lord. It brings pleasure to the Lord. It brings wisdom. It causes the Lord's pity to increase. It brings acceptance with God. It brings the mercy of God. It brings blessing, confidence, separation, evil, Christian fellowship. It does away with the fear of man. It brings answer to prayer, and it prolongs your life. Now, my dear friend, what more do you want than that? You say money. Well, if you get the prayers answered and live a long time and get blessing in the mercy of God and wisdom, you can make all the money God intended for you to have. So we should pray that God will teach us to fear him. David said, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. The fear of the Lord is the healthiest motive available on the earth today. And alongside the fear of the Lord, positive thinking doesn't run a close third. The positive thinking mentioned in Philippians chapter 4 is for the prayer life of the born-again believer. The fear of the Lord is for a man saved or lost in any station of life, of any sex or race, anywhere on the face of God's earth. All right, we trust our lessons on theology, the study of God, have been a blessing to you. Next week at this same time, we'll take up a study of what we call Christology. Christology quite naturally deals with the person and work of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, broadcast next week in our first lesson on Christology, we'll take up the prophecies that deal with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to Scripture, was God manifest in the flesh. Until the same time next week, then may the Lord bless you, and good day.